If a small flock of cartoon bluebirds didn't help you get dressed this morning, that just means you haven't yet listened to Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor. No, the black dress slacks, please. Thank you. And now, Jim Hill. Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation, news, and commentary. I'm Jim Hill, and before Drew and I get started here, I just wanted to toss out a quick thank you to all you folks who have been sending kind notes telling Mr. Taylor and myself how much you've been enjoying this podcast. You guys seem to really appreciate what Drew and I are trying to do here, which which I'm sad to say isn't, isn't the attitude that the animation fan community seems to have in regards to Warner Brothers Animation's new reboot of Thundercats. Uh, Drew, get in here. Well, uh, hi. Thanks for having me. Hi. <laughs> it's Cartoon Network, right? This right. is they're the ones who are going to revive Thundercats. It's it's coming out in 2019, and it's called Thundercats Roar. Okay, which is a, kind of a fun title. I agree. Again, for those of you who aren't familiar with the show, this is an animated series from the 1980s. They've already made one run at reviving it in 2011, and. Look, I don't necessarily have a problem with revivals right on top of revivals. I mean, if you think about it, what? We had the original Spider-Man movies, the San Raimi's, that started in 2002. The Amazing Spider-Man is 2012. And just last year, we saw Spider-Man Homecoming with 2017. So occasionally, a reboot right on top of a reboot can be a good thing. The original series, produced back in 1985... I was fascinated to see it was produced by Rankin Bass. Oh, I had no idea. The Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer People? Yeah. But again, it's a co-production with this company called Leisure Concepts, which makes it sound like Hermie got in bed with people who make baka loungers. (laughs) Anyway, 130 episodes, much loved by kids of the 1980s. So Warner Brothers decides to revive the show in 2011. It's a darker, more sophisticated take on the material, and... They planned 52 episodes, and it just didn't seem to click. And so after just one season, got 26 episodes, it got shut down. I did not even know that that was a thing. I had no idea that existed. Same thing here. Lion-O, for this version of the show, was voiced by Will Friedle, which, again, Ron Stoppable. Sounds like should have worked, didn't work. I mean, again, it's... The marketplace's votes, and they didn't embrace it, so they move on. That's what Warner Brothers has done this time around. It's an, a reboot of a reboot. We've got producer Victor Courtright, and there's this wonderful little teaser out there where he talks about how they're trying to mix comedy with super curl action elements, and you saw this, right? You yeah, I thought it was really cool. They sort of did a new take on the... The famous opening shot of the first Thundercats, which was that crazy, epic, sort of single take thing. And they they did their own spin on it, and it's very stylized. It's sort of in the current sort of Gravity Falls, Steven Universe look. And I thought it looked great, and I think a comedic approach is definitely the right way to approach this franchise. What about you, Jim? I'm kind of in the same wheelhouse on this. I mean, I liked what I saw, and... Yet you go online and the fan community is in full, you are raping my childhood mode. And it's like, here's what I don't get. Why is it that people have so enthusiastically embraced Disney's DuckTale revival, which to me looks kind of the same mindset of what Courtright's doing with with Thundercats. We've got 
a different look, a different style of storytelling, a, a different mythos, and yet he's not getting the pass that Matt Youngberg and Francisco Ancont, the guys who developed the DuckTales reboot, is getting. It's like, what's the disconnect here? Yeah, I don't know, but it, you're right. The response online has been overwhelmingly negative, which is just, it's very weird. And, and I didn't even think about the DuckTales connection, but yeah, I mean, that show is just being lapped up they have this whole month-long promotion on Disney Channel. Yeah. Have you been watching the new episodes? Yes, I'm totally sucked in. It's week before last where they did the episode where they showed Darkwing Duck as a television series. And, and again, the fan community give it, then the fan community take away. It's like, yeah. what do you mean he's not a real character? He's a television character. It's like, all right, it's, it's a TV series, guys. Calm down. Well, I have a theory on that, that he will be doing real adventuring later on in the season because... Launchpad makes that offhanded remark about how the actor does his own stunts. So I'm pretty sure we're going to be seeing more of that in the future. Very cool. Yeah. Oh, before I forget, there's this weird Thundercats from the 1980s and and the original DuckTales connection. Um, Turns out Pacific Animation Corp was a company that Disney hired to do a lot of the work on DuckTales. But it turns out... Disney bought them outright in 89 to form Walt Disney Animation Japan. But the weird thing is that at one point in their past, the artists who were doing the original DuckTales were pivoting and also working on Thundercats. So it's like, there's a part of me that really wants the fan community to embrace this Thundercat thing, if, if only for that. And if they're upset with this fun, loose, cartoony take on it, has anybody been paying attention to what Seth Green and Matt Scheinrich have been doing over with Thundercats on Robot Chicken? Oh, that's right. They regularly drag that show through the litter box. And it's just, I mean, really vicious but funny stuff. I just don't get it. And speaking of things that I, I'm sorry. That you, that you I, don't I, get. I, I, and I feel bad about this because I'm such a hypocrite to pivot from going... Please give Thundercats Roar a chance to having just seen the teaser trailer of Mowgli. And my first reaction is, do not want. Yeah. And it's like, what's wrong with me, Drew? Well, I I mean, mean, superficially, not a lot. You know, I think you're you're in fine health. You're doing great. Oh, you mean in your response to Mowgli? Yeah, I don't, I wasn't really feeling this trailer either. Did you watch the little, like, featurette with Andy Serkis talking about it? No, in fact, thank you for bringing that up. Because, again, Andy arguably is the Laurence Olivier performance capture. I mean, think about it. This is the guy who did Gollum for Lord of the Rings. He did Caesar for the, the Planet of the Apes reboot trilogy. He's Snoke, and or was Snoke. <laughs> R.I.P. So he's kind of the acknowledged master of, of performance capture. And so if, if you wanted a guy to direct your movie... This would be the guy. And so talk to me about the feature, because, again, I don't know why. I just look at this trailer and think, dark. Well, that's the thing. He, he reiterates how dark it is. At one point, he says, I'll tell you what, there's no singing and dancing in this one. So that is a direct you know, reference to the Disney animated one and the, and the reboot. But it just it looks so similar, but with, sort of without the charm and the effervescence of the Jon Favreau version. I just don't get it. I mean, what's kind of cool is that the actors did actually do their performance capture for this one, unlike the Disney one, which was just voice acting, essentially. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. but and I don't know. You get to see, in the featurette, you get to see, like, Benedict Cumberbatch walking around on stilts and Christian Bale with the whole headgear 
on, but it didn't do enough to entice me. But you know what you do see in that featurette that's not in the trailer? Mm-hmm. So Circus not only directed it, but he's Baloo in the movie. Yeah. And he just, he says that the original version of Baloo is more like a drill sergeant. And it mm-hmm. shows the scene of him yelling at Mowgli. And it's just so off-putting. It is mm-hmm. not anything you want to watch. It's not anything you want to hear. But this is the way they're selling it because it looks so similar to the other one. Look, Warner Brothers knew going into this that they were going to have to get out of Jungle Book, the Favreau movie, Shadow. and They initially pushed its release date back from October of 2016 to October of 2017. So the fact that it's been pushed back even further now to November of 2019... But at the same time, the Favreau thing, I mean, just so completely embraced. I mean, it was the the sixth highest grossing film for last year. It came within inches of making a billion dollars. And in fact, for a while there, three weeks after the movie's out, Disney announced, oh, we're doing a Jungle Book sequel. And that seems to have faded. Yeah. Because Favreau's now well into working on The Lion King. But Yeah, I mean, even when I talked to the head of production, Sean Bailey. When I talked to Sean Bailey last year after the release of Beauty and the Beast, he said that Disney knew about the other Jungle Book, and that's the reason why there are songs in the John Favreau one. Originally, there were no songs, but they knew they had to stand apart from that Warner Brothers version, so they put in the songs, which is sort of an interesting thing. He said, you know, we know that there are only so many of these stories out there, and there are certain levers that we can pull as Disney that other studios can't. And so that's one of them, which is really interesting. I feel like a hypocrite. What if I look at this thing and clearly it's got a level of artistry and ambition to it. I look at this trailer and go, mm-hmm. And yet I, I look at the the trailer for Smallfoot, the new CG thing from from Warner Brothers Animation Group. Oh, yeah. And it's like, I mean, that to me looks like fun. But again, that's Kerry Kirkpatrick who did a lot of writing for Disney back in the day. I mean, he was on board, part of the story team for Rescuers Down Under. He did the home premiere, Honey, I Shrunk sequel, Honey, We Shrunk Ourselves. He he worked on James and the Giant Peach, and he then goes over to DreamWorks and works on Chicken Run, which we talked about our last podcast. And the other thing is, one of the reasons I really admire Carrie is he was the guy after Douglas Adams tragically died in May of 2001 and left behind like 15 different versions of the script for Hitchhikers. Carrie was the guy who waded into that pile of manuscripts and pulled together a semi-coherent movie. That's an underrated Disney movie, too, I think. I agree as well. And speaking of underrated, the other thing, Carrie co-directed with Tim Johnson Over the Hedge to, which is honestly one of my favorite DreamWorks movies. I agree. Supposedly they were considering doing another Over the Hedge and just did not do it, but... Speaking of which, though, Smallfoot, obviously, again, sort of riffing on the Bigfoot thing. And do you find it kind of intriguing that we're in this same window of time? I mean, Smallfoot comes out September. Yep. And yet we pivot the DreamWorks. And here they've just renamed their Everest project to Abominable, which storyline, when a mischievous group of friends find a young yeti, they head off on an epic quest to return this magical creature to his family at the highest point in the earth, and yet Laika? Was it last month that they 
they announced their fifth movie and yeah and we we finally got the image of it like what last week or a couple of weeks ago yeah and again it's a yeti it's it's mr link well again the movie's called missing link so yeah that really surprised but again same thing embarking on a global quest from the pacific northwest in search of shangri-la you know sometimes this happens in hollywood i mean back in the late 80s inside of three months there were three body switching movies there were vice versa with fred savage and judge reinhold and then 18 again with charlie schlater and george burns and it was only the last one big with tom hanks that really really hit and then in the late 1990s we had those meteor or or comets crashing into earth movies or deep impact and armageddon so i really hope Smallfoot works. I'm one of those people who actually like Storks. Oh, yeah. I liked Storks a lot, too. But half the fun for Storks for me was it had a great design and just funny animation. I mean, just the sort of thing where you could sit there and laugh at at how well or great character design and and wonderful character animation. So that's why I'm looking forward to Smallfoot. But, But you were mentioning that it's Warner Brothers partnering with Sony. Is that right? Yeah, it's Sony pictures animation which i believe also did the animation for storks yeah they're doing smallfoot which there are certain aspects of that trailer that seem to share an aesthetic with uh, the hotel transylvania movies just in a sense you know i mean they're both about monsters but mm-hmm. it's just sort of weird that warner brothers which has such an amazing legacy of animation doesn't have a dedicated animation studio since what the end of the 90s with iron giant was sort of the last as they were shutting down, Iron Giant was sort of getting pushed out the door. Well, that seems to be changing. I mean, that's the other big news of this week is that they suddenly announced they're doing something rather ambitious and sizable. Like it, it's, what is it? They're partnering with George R.R. R. Martin. He wrote a children's book back in 1980 called The Ice Dragon. And evidently, this is going to be Warner Brothers Animation's big stake in the ground we're back in this business interesting i hope it's true same thing here i mean you know i I really really want this to work and since we're mentioning sony pictures animation i guess we we should talk about the mitchells and the machines right i'm very excited about this but you and i are both excited for this not for the reasons anybody might think i mean this is what chris miller and phil lord the lego movie the the 21 jump street guys and and of course the guys who who started to direct solo (laughs) it's kind of a weird story for a family animated thing it's a family that sets out on vacation that gets disrupted by basically Skynet, right? Right. All the machines and appliances and things turn on them. It sounds Mm -hmm. like the cutest episode of Black Mirror ever, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And speaking of which, though, that, again, the reason that this film excites both Drew and I is because we're huge fans of the late, great Disney animated series Gravity Falls. And it turns out... This is being directed by Mike Randa, who I also worked on the screenplay with Jeff Rowe. And Mike was the former creative director on, on Gravity Falls, right? Yeah, I believe he directed a few episodes as well. And and Jeff was a, a writer, I want to say, on the second season of the show. So 
Anything that brings that Gravity Falls aesthetic, that style of writing back into the world, I'm excited about. Yes, it is dearly missed. But there's like some exciting news related to Gravity Falls, right? Yeah, this is really a fascinating development. Normally, when Disney produces a, a television series or, or a film or that sort of thing, invariably, if there's going to be a Blu-ray or DVD or that sort of thing, it goes out through Walt Disney's studios home entertainment division they're the ones who handle the blu-ray and the the dvd and this isn't the case with gravity falls july 18th of this year or excuse me july 24th of of this year we're going to see gravity falls the complete series coming out from shout factory so this is a really ambitious take yeah on the show It's, it's seven discs 15 hours of material comes with an exclusive litho I'm just fascinated by the fact that Disney let Shout Factory have this rather than send this out through the normal route through Walt Disney Studios Home Entertainment. Well, you were at that script reading that we did, right, of the first yeah, episode. Okay. Oh, that was, that was great. Yeah, so right before the finale aired, mm-hmm. I took part in a script reading with Alex Hirsch, some of the voice cast, and the composer, and we basically ran, read through the first script for the very first, the pilot episode. And it was at that event that I said, Alex, you got to put these out on Blu-ray. We need the whole set. And he said, listen, I've been fighting with Disney for years trying to get this done. They put out those two kind of DVDs with select episodes like they used to do with like X-Files. And he said, that's not Mm -hmm. enough. Mm -hmm. You know, I have all this material. I've been begging them to let me do it. So I think that Alex probably pushed this through more than anything else. And Disney just, I think when it ended, they kind of, wipe their hands clean even though that the journal three is mm-hmm. one of the best-selling books in the history of disney publishing i mean that thing sells are you out. kidding me no uh, oh, yeah I, it is huge oh i love to hear that i'd love to hear that they released that like 300 dollars version last christmas those went like you know in a few seconds so it's very interesting their their position on it and it makes me wonder if they'll let other maybe gargoyles or one of the more cultish shows get released by shot factory in its complete collection well here's something well all right now we're going to take a quick break here while drew and i run to amazon and, and pre-order our you know, copies of the the gravity falls complete series but back in just a second and we are back I know we just did the news segment portion of this week's fine-tuning, but obviously the big story of the world of animation right now is what's happening with John Lasseter. I mean, it's been six months to the day, and when John, that letter was published that John was stepping away for six months, and his apologies, and and the press has been full of stories lately about what happens next. That is, is John going to come back? And if so... In what capacity? Is is he just going to be a creative consultant? Is he going to once again be the grand poobah of both Walt Disney feature animation and Pixar, as well as all the work he used to do in the Disney theme parks? And nobody knows right now. It's sad to think that we could potentially be talking about the end of John Lasseter's career at Pixar or Disney. So Drew and I have decided to bury the needle in the other direction. We're going to talk about the beginning of of John Lasseter's career. Yes, that seems like a much better idea. And let's talk about Where the Wild Things Are. Yeah. Which is a project that he worked on with Glenn Keane that 
combined computer animation and hand-drawn animation in a, in a style that still, I don't think, has been completely been done before, right? No, it, it give you some idea that this was supposed to be a featurette based on Maurice Sondak's famous children's picture book. In this same window of time, Disney feature animation had started doing featurettes again. In fact, it just the same year that they did the test, in, in October of 1983, we saw Mickey's Christmas Carol released to theaters. Uh, it was paired with Pinocchio for the holiday season then. But, you know, a 25-minute long film. And this is basically what they wanted to do with Where the Wild Things Are. But, but again, gimmick here was Glenn Keane, who was just really basically starting out his career at Disney. He'd sort of made his bones on Fox and the Hound in 81. He did that amazing bear fight at the end of the movie, and that really put him on the map for a lot of people at the studio. And meanwhile, John had been lurking around the trailers where they were working on Tron the year previous and thought he had seen the future. And so the two of them came together on this project. In a lot of ways, it was it was kind of a this wonderful Venn diagram because it's, it turns out Maurice Sondak is a crazy, or was a, a crazy Disney fan. If you talked with him, the subject of his birth year came up. He'd say, yeah, I was born in 1928, the same year as Mickey Mouse. And he felt very much a kinship to Mickey. In fact, if you've ever seen his picture book in the night kitchen. Yes. It's really done in very much in the styles of the Silly Symphonies. But so Sondak wants to work with Disney. Keen and Lassiter want to do something, you know, a follow-up project for Mickey's Christmas Carol, which, by the way, they both worked on. Nobody had ever done this before, marrying hand-drawn animation to CG. In fact, the gimmick was the backgrounds are going to be CG yeah. and the characters were going to be hand-drawn. Yeah, you can see the test still online, the kind of zooming camera move that follows Max. He's jumping on the bed and then he comes out of into the hallway and down the stairs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's pretty startling stuff, especially when you think about it being made in 1983. Oh, yeah. But I can't imagine how much that ended up costing well see that was the problem in the end that's what tripped up the project when they finished the test in june of 83 and they begin showing it around the studio and everyone loves it but then the price point comes up 25 minutes of hand-drawn and cg they sussed it out was going to cost six million dollars which was half of what the studio had spent two years previous to complete Fox and the Hound. And Ron Miller, who's in charge of the studio at this point, he's willing to embrace CG if there's going to be some sort of a cost saving or if it's going to speed up production of animation. And that's the thing. Ron wanted to support feature animation. I mean, this is one of these periods in Disney history where we're talking October 83. The very next year is green mail and Ron being forced out and Eisner coming through the door and he comes within seconds of just shutting down feature animation. I mean, Roy Disney basically throws himself on that grenade and, and stops him because as far as Eisner was concerned, it was like, we have this library of titles and we'll just, we can put those out in theaters every seven years like you guys are doing or put them on VHS and it just sort of like, Roy's like, no, we need to do new stuff. Right. But he had already lost his enthusiasm for computer animation by then, too, because Tron yeah. was hugely expensive and did not recoup its box office. I mean, it did its budget <laughs> at the box office. 
Well, and it's so funny you say that because Ron says no to where the wild things are, which, just quick side note, no, has to be hugely disappointing for Maurice Sondak, who's just agreed to come work at Walt Disney Studios. He, They bring him in to do some production design and character design on Return to Oz, which won't be out in theaters till 85. But again, he because they were making his Where the Wild Things Are, it's like, well, I'd be glad to work with you guys. And in the end, there's only one piece of art that ever made it out for Maurice. And he, he kind of stepped away from Disney's designs. But anyway, John Lasseter is not getting the message that Ron Miller is not very enthusiastic about animation or CG because of what happened with Tron. If you're not going to make something cheaper, he doesn't want to use animation. Because John pivots from working on the Where the Wild Things Are test to putting together a test for a feature-length version of the brave little toaster i mean i know we've all seen the hyperion hand-drawn movie but this actually started out as a disney project a disney title and it pops up online every so often there's this amazing animation test of the characters from the brave little toaster done in cg in a shopping cart and they're whizzing along the highway and what's really really cool evidently about this animation test is that the toaster himself is chrome and what you can see if you look in the chrome of the toaster as he's riding in the shopping cart that's whizzing along the highway is you can see the camera crew in the car that's supposed to be alongside of them shooting the footage oh I mean, that's amazing yeah i mean it's just you know this sort of distorted reflection of the camera crew leaning out of the car and 30-second test, brings it to Ron Miller, shows it to him. Ron is wowed, and he loves the stories, and, and John's like, and to make a feature-length version of The Brave Little Toaster is only going to cost $20 million. And Miller, again, his head explodes, because it's like, did we not just have this conversation <laughs> in regard to where the wild things are? And so, like, look, I love this. I love this technology. I love what you've done. But I have stockholders and shareholders and I have to be responsible head of a corporation and and we lost so much money on Tron and it's like I'm sorry I don't want to make this and the other thing people don't like to talk about is John didn't have fans in the building there were only a few a lot of people found him kind of annoying he was the kid who ran off and was going in the Tron trailers and bothering people so when Miller passed on this project within an hour John gets a call from Ed Hansen, who's the administrator of the feature animation department at Disney at that point. And he says, well, John, I just heard from Ron and we're not going to make that project. So your services are no longer required by Walt Disney Animation Studios. And they fired him. Wow. And for a long time, John wouldn't talk about that. It was a very, very, very sensitive subject, even at Disney. The kicker, though, that he didn't even tell his wife that he'd been fired. So for like a day or two afterwards, he'd get up in the morning and he'd just get out of the house because I can't tell Nancy. I can't tell Nancy I lost my job at Disney. And But it turns out that there was something he could do during this this week of he was trying to figure out what he was going to do next now that he'd been fired by Disney. And there was this computer graphics conference that was being held. This is November of 1983 now. 
but it's being held that week on the Queen Mary in Long Beach. Now, was so, that when Disney owned the Queen Mary, or this, this was before Disney owned the this Queen Mary? This is before. Okay. This is before. Disney doesn't get the Queen Mary till 87, 88. Okay. So John goes down and is just sort of sitting there at the conference and obviously kind of disconnected because I, I lost my job. I haven't told my wife I've lost my job. And But who's there in the crowd at the event? But Ed Catmull, who at this point is working with the Lucasfilm's graphic group, the folks who, who do CG and had recently just done the the planet. Uh, oh, yes, for the uh, Project Genesis from Star Trek. That's it, exactly. Three, so, four, you know, yeah, one of those. Ed had heard through the grapevine that Disney, well, they weren't going to do, you know, where the wild things are, but John had been working on the Brave Little Toaster. And so there's a break in the seminars and Cat Milk goes up to John and it's like, good to see you and you know and what's going on with brave little toaster and and john's like well you know they, they didn't green light it and but can't bring itself to say he's been fired by disney but that's where they met though right and had john come aboard and create what would eventually become pixar right well in fact that's the greatest part of the story that catmull oh i'm sorry to hear that and sits down but now for the very next seminar catmull's thinking they didn't green light it he's available it's like holy crap so the very next seminar breaks and say, hey, I realize you work for Disney and, you know, a big deal. But, you know, would you you think about maybe coming up to Skywalker Ranch and maybe consulting on what we're doing? I mean, we're, we're doing a, a thing for SIGGRAPH next year and I really could use some help. And, and Lass says, well, yeah, maybe I could get away from Disney. <laughs> you know, and so they do the Where the Wild Things Are test in June of 1983. In November of 1983... You've got John, he's got his test for Brave Little Toaster, gets let go by Disney. First week of December, he's already up at Skywalker, and he's consulting on what eventually became the adventures of Andre and Wally B. And now, jump ahead just seven months, all right? And here, it's July of 1984, and it's SIGGRAPH being held in Minneapolis, and I want to say... They weren't able to complete the adventures of Andre and Wally B. They were only able to show like the first half of it, but it caused this this sensation. It's so funny you mentioned with the where the wild things are about you know that amazing camera move and running down the stairs and under the bed and that sort of thing. And when you look at computer graphics during that period, it was all very slick. I mean, you know, the flying camera moves or lots of chrome that things were reflected in and all of that. And the thing of the adventures of Andre and Wally B is this is the first time anybody had ever done CG characters in the classic Disney style where they squashed and stretched. And people lost their minds because it was so different. It was so amazing. And this is what literally launches John. You know, because it's like, you know, who did this? Who did this amazing piece of animation with CG that looks just like or has the, the same feel of hand-drawn? And so that the guy over there, John Lasseter, who used to work at Disney, who now works for us. What Keen does during this same period, I mean, he stepped away from what happened with the where the Wild Things are test, and he was looking at Black Cauldron like, I, I can't get on board with that. I don't understand that film. But he does go to do The Great Mouse Detective, and that's where he does Radigan. And when you go from the bear fight in Fox and the Hound to Radigan in The Great Mouse Detective, and then from there, he continued his run of villains and did, oh, I'm blanking the name of the villain for Oliver and Company. But right after that, we got 
Ariel, we got Aladdin. I mean, this amazing career. And the reason I'm talking about it like this is that right now, up at the Walt Disney Family Museum, there is this amazing exhibition going on, Make Believe, The World of Glen Keane. And Glen Keane himself helped curate the show, which pulls together some of, of his great art. And I haven't actually seen the show yet myself, but I wonder if... If, in fact, there is anything from oh, where the wild things are up there. I think we're going to have to go. I think the, yeah, next, the I... next time you're out on this coast, we got to go. I've never been, so, I, I mean, I really want to go. Well, the other reason we have to go, Drew, is that the show that literally just opened last week there is that the companion show is Walt Disney's Nine Old Men, Masters of Animation. And this one was actually put together by Don Hahn. He reached out to family members of... Of, again, the Nine Old Men, the, the master animators that Walt leaned on to do some of the great, great features of the golden age of the studio. But he's got artwork, he's got interviews, all of this killer material. But but again, if we're, we're telling people when to go to this thing, just be aware the Glen Keane exhibition only runs through September 3rd of this year, whereas the Nine Old Men, that runs through January 7th of 2019. So you have a little bit of time. You got some time. We got some time. Yeah. And speaking of time, folks, we are rapidly running out of time for this week's episode of Fine Tuning. And I, I know we were going to talk about Guillermo de Toro and Disney Double Dare. We mentioned that in the last podcast. We didn't get around to that. More to the point, we, we didn't touch on Disenchantment, the new Matt Groening thing. Oh, yeah. The Netflix series that'll be coming out in August. Right. Yeah. So, all right. I promise we'll circle around to that one with our next episode, which will come much sooner than, than this episode, folks. But, yes. but anyway, that's it for today's show. If you have any suggestions or stories that you'd like Drew and I to explore on future fine-tunings, feel free to pass those suggestions along. And that's it for tonight. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tune in again for another fine episode of Fine-Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor.